hope you'll remember when you start your work again tomorrow that a little effort in Johnson goes a long way. I mean, I came here to read to you and to read some of your manuscripts, but I'm also going to work the next five or six mornings that I'm here. So um, it's, it's wonderful that you're able to do that you know, in relative solitude and uh, with the usual demons, um, especially grocery shopping out of your hair. Hmm? Although, I do most of the grocery shopping in our family, but it's nice to come to a, a, a kind of place of stillness here where you have to move in order to make things work. Um, I'll read the opening page of the novel, which is uh, what you would do were you to pick it up, and then talk a little bit about uh, a couple of the very brief sections that I'll read uh, after that. The title... Um, so let's imagine that you pick it up in a bookstore. Do you remember bookstores? <laughs> Gary uh, was just talking at uh, dinner about the return of the soda fountain. So if the soda fountain can make a comeback, just think about the bookstore. Um, with the demise of the megastore, which seems to be happening all around us, the, the, the independent bookstore still standing, will stand out again in our lives, I think. So if you were you to pick this up or look at it on a screen, you'd see the title, which is called Song of Slaves in the Desert, which uh, comes from a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier. He took this out of a, uh, an African journal by a 19th century writer named Richardson. Um, it's the song that this man Richard Richardson records and which uh, Whittier turns into a, a lyric. Where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going, Ruby? Ruby is the name they give to their god. Lord of peoples, lord of lands, look across these shining sands through the furnace of the noon, through the white light of the moon. Strong the ghibli wind is blowing, strange and large the world is growing. Speak and tell us where we're going, where we're going, Rubli. So that's the song of slaves in the desert. And it opens this way. An eruption, the stone. The shock wave jarred them from sleep and sent them stumbling to their feet. Next came the roar of exploding earth and a sky in flames. From that maelstrom in the heavens did a voice call to them, go, hurry. The three of them, the man first, the woman following slightly behind, the child trailing off to one side, hurried away across the steaming plain, making their first marks, footprints in the yielding layer of ash. Light shifted behind the veil of smoking sky. The rumbling went on and on. The man shouted at the gathering mist, coughing as he breathed. The girl slowed up, listed toward the plain, reached down and plucked at the ash. They walked, they walked. Light turned over, revealing a blue sky streaked with a long tail of smoke and ash. The girl pulled away from her mother, clutching something in her hand. This stone, relatively cool to the touch, born of an earlier eruption, this small egg-shaped stone, black, bluish, purple, mahogany, cocoa, 
dark fire within three horizontal lines, one vertical, the same pattern carved into your high cheeks. Take it and hold it to your lips. Taste earth and sky, the inside of a mouth, the lining of a birth canal, the faintest fleck of something darker even than the blackness through which it has passed. You have now kissed wherever this stone has been, and it has traveled far. She said this to her child, as her mother had said to her, and her mother's mother before that, and mothers and mothers to mothers, a line stretching all the way back to the first darkness and first light from where the stone had spurted up from the heart of the rift in fire and smoke and steam, blurring the line where light of earth met light of sun, though at night the line showed starkly again. Who first carved those lines on its face, three horizontal, one vertical? Three horizontal, the trek across the land, the one vertical, the ascent into the heavens. What hand and eye had kept them straight in both directions, across and up and down? What hands had passed it along from time through time until it lay in the palm of a man sprawled on his back on the desert floor between the town and the river? So that's all you know when you read that first page. And what you discover as you read is uh, you, you're in the uh, one of two narrative strands that weave throughout the novel. Uh, a family of uh, Muslim slaves fleeing from Timbuktu into the desert, forewarned that the sheikh to whom they have been uh, sold originally is going to sell them to a friend of his in order to pay a debt. So they head out into the desert and um, are captured by Arab slavers and uh, sold to a number, of, they go through a number of incarnations and generations as, uh, as slaves. Uh, the second strand, and, I, and I'll just read very brief uh, sequence that comes out of uh, Africa. This chapter is called Tambacunda. The further west they traveled, the worse things began. Unlike most of the Arab men, these slavers, mostly dark-skinned ruffians, some with decorative scars on faces and foreheads, some with filed teeth, treated them roughly and without respect. They touched, they pinched, they pulled, and then laughed and spat. Brutes, infidels who never stopped to pray, they worried her. They harried everyone to move along during the day and at night around the fires, as if picking up a piece of roasted meat from a tray, they would pluck a woman from the group and carry her off into the dark. Twice they took Zainab, and each time she prayed and resisted, but to no avail. The pain settled into her as if an exquisite punishment from God. Bruised in the flesh and chilled in her blood, she returned to her family at the fire, refusing to speak and taking the smallest child in her arms in the hopes of finding some more warmth to live for, almost to no avail. Her soul felt as though she had dropped it into a deep well and left it to drown. Lilith, her middle daughter, a willowy, tan-complected girl with an even disposition, tried to calm her. Mama, she said, one day our father will find us and take his revenge on these men. Zainab shuddered with a chill even more cutting than the remorse that already cooled her blood, that a child of hers would find it necessary to say such things. It was a horror, a horror. 
And yet things might have been worse because she could not know what we know, that every hour and every day and every month and year brought them closer and closer, the children's children at least, because she herself would not live to see it, to their terrifying passage over nearly limitless water. At a crossroads, could this be Tambacunda? They entered a large market. Stalls and tents, horses and camels tethered behind them. The vast animal smell of caravan life rose like smoke from a vast fire as they approached. One half the sky lay in darkness, this to the east, the other with the last light of the day. Drums resounded behind the large array of covers and pennants, and Zainab could also hear ever so faintly a wavering call to prayer. The traders led their entourage into the city, where from the gates of a domed palace hundreds and hundreds of slaves, armed with various weapons, bows, short lances, shields, burst forth into the large square before it. Within the walls, a sultan presided over business in a lofty pavilion, and off to one side stood troops, governors, young men, slaves. Musicians among the slaves blew bugles and beat drums with sticks and made a wonderful sound. Before the sultan's chair, jugglers and acrobats performed. The traders led their entourage off to one side of the courtyard, where a long-bearded man with a book inscribed numbers with a reed pen. His wives and many concubines stood behind him wearing fine silks, bands of gold and silver around their heads, singing quietly among themselves while their master went about his work of dispatching the goods presented to them by the traders. Zainab screamed and the girls wailed, and before they knew it, they lived apart from each other for the rest of their lives. The, the second strand of narrative uh, focuses on a... Um, A young, uh, as in 20-plus man, Jewish man from New York, whose uh, father sends him down to Charleston in the mid-19th century to uh, his brothers, the, the characters, uncles, plantation, to see if uh, it's worth investing in. And uh, this man's name is Nathaniel Pereira. And uh, his narrative uh, alternates with the African narrative until at a certain point, and you'll hear it at the end of this very short sequence that I'm going to read, uh, the, two, the stories of the two families converge. This chapter is called This Charming City. Uh, Nathaniel has just been treated by his cousin, Jonathan Pereira, who oversees the plantation, to uh, a picnic at the Charleston docks, and uh, then a slave auction, which also occurs at the Charleston docks. Free of the stink of the auction house, this charming city overtook me with its delightful houses, narrow structures that faced onto side gardens and stretched back further into gardens behind. There was as much foot traffic as in Manhattan, and the edges of the streets were filled mostly with these walkers, almost exclusively black-faced, women with children slung over their backs in small bundles, and men with garden tools and others hauling crates and packages. But though all these folks appeared to be working, there was much less of a hurry and hustle about the streets than in my native town mainly because the heat was such that everyone, slave or free, had to carry about the extra burden of the temperature and its humid essence. 
Here's the courthouse, my cousin said as we approached an impressively erected building, though of a miniature size compared to our New York structures, and the Episcopal Church, and another church, and a meeting hall. At the corner, a crowd of men on horseback in rough country garb jittered and huddled, their horses covered with dust. A short man with wiry hair sat upon a tall stallion in the center of them, the horse so white it glowed almost blue. What's this? I asked. My cousin shook his head. It's a man named Langerhans, Rebecca said. This is his cousin Jonathan's wife. If man he is, he's more like something carved out of the mud. As if he heard her say his name, though over the noise of the horses and at this distance it seemed doubtful, the mud man turned his head, following us as we moved. Hello, he called in our direction, touching a finger to his right eyebrow in sort of a salute. Ignore him, my cousin said to Rebecca as the white horse stepped closer. Saw your nigger girl just now carrying some basket or other, the man said as his horse danced sideways toward and yet away from us. Thank you, Langerhands, my cousin said. As uh, Since you're paid to keep watch, it's good to know you're on the lookout. You're welcome, sir, Langerhands said, a shy grin spreading across his face. He showed dark teeth and it was not a pretty sight, and yet overall his visage was not unappealing. But you're supposed to keep watch outside of town, not here, Jonathan said. We're just leaving, sir, the man said. Good, then good, just do your job. With that, my cousin gave a snap of the buggy whip and we moved along, putting those others behind us. Who are they? I said. Patrollers, poor nasty wretches, my cousin said. They make a living out of the misery of others. That's how many of us up north think about you plantation owners, I said. I no sooner spoke when I felt the heat of deep embarrassment spreading up my chest, neck, and face. I I'm sorry. No need to apologize, Rebecca said. No need. We're just going to have to show you a new side of things. Some of us are working to improve the African souls. Jonathan? Yes, though we have a lot of obstacles to overcome, my cousin said. The look he gave me, scarcely matching the restrained tone of his voice. Clearly, the brandy at the picnic had soothed whatever troubled him, but not enough. Now here is our place. We slowed up and took in the trim stone building on our left, the synagogue called Beth Elohim on Cumming Street where we have recently had quite a revolution, my cousin said, for there were those who objected to the use of an organ in the service, and they seceded and now meet just across the way. I'm sorry I missed the war, I said. Oh, there'll be more of it, I'm sure, said Rebecca with a laugh. A hundred Jews, and each has his own opinion about God. Our family remained with the majority, my cousin Jonathan said. Rebecca's family left with the secessionists. I hope that hasn't made Trouble for you, I said. Oh, yes, my cousin said, but pleasant trouble. Rebecca, would you say it's spiced things up a bit between us? Yes, it's very romantic, she said, to meet across the line of dispute, like Juliet and Romeo. She looked at me in a way both shy and inquisitive. Nathaniel, do you have a Juliet at home? I have a Miriam, I said, and the words struck me like pellets from a gun. Yes, I did, did I not? My Juliet, I'd never thought of Miriam that way before. That is sweet, Rebecca said. Do you miss her? I've not been away that long, I said, but I'm sure I will. By this time in our journey, my coat was soaked through, as was the handkerchief I used to dab the rivulets of sweat from my face. The weather here, I remarked, happy to change the subject, it takes some getting used to. My cousin Jonathan laughed deep in his throat, but I was noticing however deep his merriment, it seemed somehow forced. We're born into it here, he said. The amusing part is that the Africans themselves have trouble with the heat. Rebecca leaned across my cousin's chest and touched me on the arm. The worst is not the heat, but the sickness. The fevers and agues that abound in this part of the country, they sometimes grow ferocious. With the swamps to the north and west and south and the ocean to our east, it's as though we live on an island, and now and then we find we have an unwanted visitation in the fever. 
A torrent of it swept through the county last year and took half a dozen of our people. The Africans, in fact, call it the visitor. So I said, taking a deep breath and hoping to lift us out of the momentary slough we'd fallen into, you're comparing me to a disease? I am, after all, just a visitor myself. The two of them laughed. And quite welcome, my cousin Jonathan said. That is true, is it not, Rebecca? She reached across my cousin and touched me again, giving me cause to think about how fortunate any child of hers would be to know a mother's touch so gentle. Yes, yes, absolutely. Why, we have had no guests in a long while, and we're all looking forward to getting to know you. Yes, yes, my cousin said. Though with all this talk about disease, you'll be quite sick of all of us long before the time comes for you to depart. I doubt that, I said. But then what did I know at the time? It was growing late, but there remains a, remained a part of the city my cousins wanted me to see, the lovely turns of road where the town met the ocean, and we had one more errand to run. So we headed to what he called the Battery. There we stopped the carriage and admired the pretty houses with their white columns and plentiful flowering trees and vines, quite different from our staid northern brick facades, and gazed a while at the ocean. Fort Sumter lay a mile or two offshore, like a man-made sh man shoal, and the sun showed silver off the placid sea. Few creatures moved around us, and the heat lay heavy on everything, settling on our lungs. I could imagine that even the ocean had stopped for a while beneath the weight of the sun, the ceaseless waverings of its surface, and perhaps even its deeper current flows. I could imagine that standing here over and again, time itself might seem to have a stop. But we must go now, my cousin Jonathan said, speaking as if to contradict me and rousing me from my overheated reverie. Liza's waiting. And so we headed away from the sea, rolling back to the pier where in the small enclosed market I'd first seen the auction of dark human beings. There a woman emerged to meet us, carrying baskets in each hand, a bright turban atop her head, her face a splendor of mahogany cheekbones and bright green eyes, and a straight nose that made her look more Hebraic than African. The sight of her made me shiver in the heat. Rebecca smiled as the slave girl approached. Cousin, here is my prize. I shut my eyes tight and then opened them again to watch the woman climb aboard the carriage onto the driver's bench on which sat the lean young dark man who had taken my bag. At such close quarters, the sight of her shut my throat. So that's the point where the, the African family and the the um, New York Jewish family meet. I'm going to read one very brief uh, sequence to close. Uh, and this is a chapter called The Goddess Intervenes in a Kingdom by the Sea. And it's a moment that comes out of the childhood of Jonathan Pereira, the, the overseer of the Pereira family's uh, Charleston rice plantation. The goddess intervenes in a kingdom by the sea. No place was Eden except Eden. But for the Pereras, whose ancestors stretched in a long line of alert and capable people from the time of the Roman conquest of the Holy Land through their exile in Rome itself and then generations later Holland, the island of Curaçao came close enough. A great-grandfather of Jonathan Pereira had, in place of some money he was owed in a business deal that had gone wrong in Amsterdam, taken the title to a seaside farm on this remote and lovely island. 
Storm sometimes battered it in late summer and early autumn, yes, but for the most part of the year, the Pereira heirs, three brothers whose own parents had emigrated from Holland to the New World, felt as though they were living in the place from which their earliest family, or so the Bible would have it, had been expelled. Alas, for all, the farm had come with a cadre of enslaved Africans, some of whom worked the land and others who served inside the house. For 10,000 years, men had taken other men as slaves, either in battle, which was certainly not the case for the peaceful Pereiras, or as payment and property. Not even these Jews, whose ancestors themselves had once lived in bondage in Egypt, could resist the temptation and opportunity that slavery offered. This led to some odd and strange situations, both on earth and in heaven, as on a certain morning in hurricane season, when the then very young Jonathan was visiting the family of the uncle who had stayed behind to work the farm on Curacao after his two siblings had shipped out north, one to Charleston and the other to New York City. Jonathan must have been seven or eight. Well, who knows if he himself could not remember exactly some young age, possibly nine, but not much older, when he left his Curacao uncle's seaside house and walked across his well-kept lawn. The slaves did a fine job of keeping it green and without weeds, and down through rows of seagrass to the beach. Let it be said, Jonathan was not a stupid child. Being able to lord it over the piccaninny offspring of the slaves had encouraged the mean streak in his character that most children, boys and girls alike, discover sometimes to their sorrow, always to their amazement. Being a child himself, power over other children deluded him into thinking that he was a powerful boy. This allowed him to believe that he found himself in no danger as he waded out into the lapping surf, waded out farther than ever before, feeling the strong waves wash over him and the tug of the undertow racing past the backs of his knees. The horizon growled black with storm clouds, and before he knew it, a wave knocked him flat on his back, the undertow lifting, lifting him from below and behind and carried him far out beyond his usual limit. A minute or two passed before he felt the fear surging through him, even as the waves hoisted him up and lowered him, hoisted him up and lowered and lowered, and suddenly he went under, flailing about, desperate for air. Think, it was not just his life at stake as his life at stake as surf surged past his shoulders as if to delight rather than to signal the imminent death by water that awaited him. And as he was sinking through the phantasmagorical aquamarine surroundings, seaweed torn about, sand in upheaval, shells and starfish sailing past, even as the current, oddly warm but ferocious in its grip, boiled around his body and carried him along to where he did not know, all of our fates hung in the balance because so much was about to change for us or never come to light at all. A sudden stillness, and he watched the last bubbles of air float from his mouth toward the surface. One bubble in particular caught his eye, and he tagged it with his glance as it rose higher and higher until it melded with the mass of other bubbles above his head. Goodbye, he should have said to us, if he knew any better. Goodbye and sorry that I'm dying and that you will never live. Liza, me, the others to be. Stupid child, he had no sense of what ruled him now, the large dark hand of death squeezing his lungs and heart. He loved facing into the storm and walking forward. See where it took him? Down he went so that his feet touched the sandy floor of ocean where he would, it seemed, come to his final early rest. <gasps> He floated to his knees, his hair waving around him like sea plant and weed. Was he gone? Yes. Poor fellow, yes, even he deserves our pity, for was he not then only a child? Dying. Now, as much as men would like to believe that the gods to whom they pray remain mutually exclusive, 
That is, the God of the Jews is different from the God of the Christians and the God of the Muslims, to name the major ways of religious thinking in the West. That remains not to be the case. Or so we might surmise, given the story of what took place in the distance, behind the bubble-born veil of that undertow, Above the storm, in the pure sunlight that always reigned when you cast yourself off a certain distance from this planet, or so ancient astronomers and some modern storytellers would propose, there roared a force as great as the impending storm below. Yahweh, whose followers took him to be the force behind all the greatest forces in the universe, found himself in a quarrel with what he took to be a lesser god or goddess, this certain Yamaya, whose followers regarded her as the force behind many natural wonders on earth. She's a, a goddess out of uh, West African animist religions, especially the goddess of oceans and rivers and streams, and even perhaps in the heavens. But she made no claim, they made no claims as great as the Jews who worshipped Yahweh. Yahweh, whose voice, when he employed it, seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere, spoke his annoyance, sounding something like Zeus, one of his older cousin gods, worshipped by the smart and poetical pagans. You're worried he may drown? May, it seems quite certain to me. Then rescue him. I should rescue him? Can you give me a good reason? He's a nasty boy, bound to grow into a nastier man, and the world has enough of these. Yamaya, loud in speech, but also looking quite lovely in her mermaid form. A mermaid swimming in near space? I cannot figure that, but that is how the story has it. She challenged Yahweh the way a wife might challenge a husband, with the full force and knowledge of someone who knows her opponent's greatest powers, but also his greatest weaknesses. But so much depends on him. He chose to walk into the waves. He miscalculated. He thinks he is invisible. This will show him. Death will show him. Some human beings beings have to learn the hard way. And if he learns this, what good will it do him? What good will it do the world? The world needs him? For what reason? Tell me a reason and I will save him. Though let us admit it, you have the power to do that yourself, do you not? Which makes me believe that you want me to join in only out of a certain goddess-like perversity. I want you to save him because he's one of yours. In the narrowest way he is, yes, he has the sign upon his genitals that he belongs to me, and now and then he mutters a prayer when sitting with his congregation. Do you want one less of him in the world? Why would you want even one more of him? Because you, Yamaya, are too coy to be in the heavens. Come out and say it. Because you know, I see it, I see everything. You want him because without him, yes, without him, without him, no one will be born to tell this story. Exactly. Unheard cataclysms, unechoed through the cosmos. Stars lived and died. Showers of some light no one would ever, ever in the history of human science be able to explain came pouring up and down and sidewise among the galaxies. And your precious girl, not even born yet, and when she is conceived, conceived in awful torque and wretched forcefulness, you want her to be free? Yes. But you want me to take away this boy's freedom to die? Yes. You want me to save one of my ass nasty own when you should be rejoicing that he will not live to do his damnest in the world against your followers? Yes. Do you think I'm bound to do this? Not necessarily. Do you think I reserve the right to be free and take his life? Yes. Then I will allow you in person to save him. As if I have a choice. Yes, because you are bound to save him no matter what I wish, correct? But Yamaya had already dived through space into the deep air of our planet, listening to Yahweh because, like any deity, she could hear everything everywhere, but often deigned not to admit all the speech and all the cries of anguish and pain and all the noise and blunderbuss burstings and agony of torture and outpourings of misery into her outward realm of sound, but already on the way to do her deeding. 
Thus, a black mermaid burst out from behind the sea foam and ocean rack curtain, taking the drowning boy by the elbows and hauling him onward and upward toward the surface. From what I have seen, the black mermaid, Yamaya, goddess of oceans and skies above oceans, declaimed in his ear, I should leave you here to drown, but so much depends on you growing into a man, however despicable a man you might be, that I have come to your rescue. You will grow older and aid your family in Charleston and become an owner of men, women, and children as you learn the business of growing rice. And one day you will see a young woman, beautiful, brown, helpless, because she is your property, and you will use her as you would use a beast, though your vile actions will not make her one. Neither will what you do to the daughter she gives you keep her from going on to make her fate. Oh, you men are so much slower than us gods. I have just told you all of your future that matters, and you are still imagining that you're drowning. She hauled him to the beach and dropped him hacking and wheezing on the sand and left him spitting up salt water, ready to begin his life to come. Thank you. <laughs>